Okay, well, we've been looking at the book of James, this little epistle that uh, the brother of Jesus, we believe, wrote this book early in the history of the New Testament to address some problems that were happening in the church that have always been a problem, and that is people saying they believe but not doing what they believe, actually not living out of their faith. And if there's a problem in the church, this is something we need to address, and so I'm loving uh, our time in the book of James, and I hope that you uh, will as well. Turn to chapter 1 in the book of James, and let's read this uh, uh, first, just a a small section. I'm not going to read the whole uh, part, but we are going to read starting in verse 9 through 18, just these few uh, verses. So now hear God's word. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with his scorching heat and withers the grass, and its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. In... uh, the Temple of Delphi, I'm sure many of you have heard, there's a frontispiece. And on that frontispiece, it says, know thyself. And in Greek, it's in, in the imperative. So it's a command that we are uh, to know ourselves. And what it means is that man is supposed to live according to his nature. You're not supposed to live outside of your nature or in some other way, but according to who and what you are. And so... The idea was that we know what we are, but we often forget. We forget who we are. We forget what we are. And uh, Socrates was famous for saying an unexamined life is not worth living. So Socrates is also uh, echoing this oracle there, that's, or this command on the frontispiece at the Temple of Delphi, that knowing yourself, knowing, being able to look down inside and understand who you are, and uh, what's going on in your inner life, we talked about it in Sunday school this morning, is of utmost importance. John Calvin, interestingly enough, in the Institutes, the first chapter, first paragraph, first book, right at the beginning, he says this, listen, nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. Now, what 
Socrates and Calvin are saying is that you've got to take a deep look inside before you can start going outside. Jesus said, uh, take the, the log out of your eye before you start pulling at the splinters in your brother's eye. Uh, the inner look is so very much important. But what we sometimes hear, especially in our culture today, is that we're supposed to be people that are extremely introspective and, you know, just navel-gazing, as one of the fellows said in Sunday school this morning, all wrapped up in ourselves. And that's not at all uh, this psychological analysis of self. That isn't what Calvin is talking about at all. And probably not what... Uh, the Temple of Delphi frontispiece meant or what Socrates means. Calvin, listen to this. Calvin argues that we must know ourselves to know God. But listen to this. This is the nuance. Because people stop there in, in the Institutes, that very first paragraph. They don't read the rest of what Calvin said. And here's what it says. It's, it's disturbing, but it's also very freeing. Listen. Calvin argues that we must know ourselves to know God. But what must we know? And now he's going to, Calvin explains if you read down. We must know our shaming nakedness, which exposes a teeming horde of infirmities. And from this comes the feeling of our own ignorance, vanity, poverty, and weaknesses, infirmities. Then we are able to understand the true light of wisdom, sound virtue, full of abundance of every good, pure, and righteous thing, and rest in Christ alone. For Calvin, knowledge of self is essential, and only then can we begin to seek after God. When, listen, you got to love this we begin to become displeased with ourselves. You see, in our modern culture, we're all about self-esteem. We've got to make ourselves feel good. Look, there's nothing wrong with that. The problem is it's going to let you down. And so if we run away from that and we don't do what he says, we don't know ourselves and know our need, our great need is God, His glory, His holiness in our lives. We've got to have it. And if we don't have that, we are not true to ourselves. We don't really know ourselves. And we have to be displeased with ourselves before we can ever find the medicine, the remedy, which is nothing less than the person of Jesus Christ and his work in our lives. And we give ourselves to that entirely. Wow, things can change. Your life may not become perfect. In fact, I would argue that it won't. But you will have a current, an undertow of strength in your life that will carry you through what James calls trials, troubles, maybe suffering that accompanies those trials or troubles. And so for the next couple of weeks, I'm not going to be able to do it all today, but I am going to address these few parts here in uh, 9 through 18 of uh, the first chapter of James. And James expands this, talks about every one of these themes later in the book. So... Here, what we're going to look at today primarily is a wise assessment, taking a good, strong look at ourselves, our inner self. And if you're honest, if you're here today and say, man, I'm, you know, I'm always criticizing myself, that's not necessarily good. I'm talking about putting ourselves under the, 
the intense light of God's word, God's truth. And so we'll take a few minutes and look at that. Then in the next part, in 13 through 15, he talks about sin. We need to take a good look at sin. Sin is not just whatever you think it is. Sin, according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And so people are breaking God's law all the time with the Ten Commandments. And all yet, look, maybe you say, I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't uh, committed adultery. I haven't stolen anything. Have you been angry this week? Was anybody upset with the stock market going down 5,000 points or something? I mean, that should have cause something, well, then you probably sinned. Nobody has any stock? Okay, that's good. All right. So the the point is the inner life, we're always doing stuff, and God is asking us to be honest about that. And if you do, it can be very freeing. It can be very therapeutic, very helpful. And, uh, and can set you on a path to seeking the glory of your Savior. And, and believe me, there's nothing quite like, quite like that. So we'll look at sin, the reality of sin. And finally, I'll refer to it a little bit today, but we're going to look at the character of God again. James continues to, to bring this up in his talk, that our lives are supposed to be based and grounded in, in the, the uh, character of God, not in our circumstances. They are going to change. They're going to go, they're going to whip like a, like a boat, like a rowboat on the end of an anchor. The wind and the waves are going to throw us around and do all kinds, but you've got to have an anchor point. And this anchor point will never fail you. So let's look at the wise assessment this morning of self. And uh, the first thing, look at verse 9. And look what he says. Let the lowly boast in exaltation. Let the rich or the well-off uh, boast in their humiliation. And what James is saying, that in the messianic kingdom, in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, there is a reversal of status, what some scholars call the upside-down kingdom. And you can look online, upside-down kingdom, I did, and it, there's some stuff out there you don't want to see. Uh, but, the, but the reversal of status and the reality of an upside-down kingdom is absolutely true. Jesus Christ proves to us that to become a leader in the kingdom of God, you must become a servant. The first in the kingdom of God will be what? The last. To find your life in the kingdom of God, what is required? You must lose your life. To defeat your enemy, you must love and serve him. To be rich, you have to be lavish, sacrificially generous. God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise, the Apostle Paul said, the weak things to shame the strong. Jesus was rich, but for our sakes, he became poor. And through his poverty, we become rich. Jesus was equal to God, listen, yet he emptied himself and made himself nothing and then he went even lower than that. He became a slave and a servant and then lower yet to his death on the cross and lower yet, naked, abandoned, 
by everyone, including God. And no one in this room has ever been forsaken by God. Nobody on this planet ever in the history of humanity has ever been forsaken by God. Only Jesus can cry out with, re- with legitimacy and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But we want to ground our lives in wealth. Listen to me, because the United States of America is famous for this, as are other places. But we've got consumeritis in this country beyond compare. Affluenza is what one author calls it. Uh, We're sick because we have so much and we don't even know it. Wealth, status, position, appearance, education, all these things make up our personal worth. It's how we measure ourselves. And listen, it's how the whole world measures you. Everywhere and in every case of life, we are measured. It's meritocracy across the board in everything. Yes? Isn't that right? Meritocracy. Even in families, you've got to perform in order to be in good standing with your family. You know, if you fail, oh my goodness, you know, we're going to ground you. Right, kids? You know, miss a test. Do something bad. Everything's meritocracy. Except when you come to God and to Jesus Christ. Then it's all grace and it can be troubling at times and it's a struggle because we're thinking all the time he's got to love me because of me somewhere somehow he's got to look down a tunnel someplace and see that I would do some good no not necessarily grace by definition means he just loves you because he loves you for no reason in and of yourself and that that's where you're to find your worth and your true identity your true listen your true self. We look for it in every kind of place. And so James is telling us at the very outset, it's chapter one, folks, he's saying, look, you, you want to be a Christian? You want to come into the church? Understand this. Just get over it. This is the way it's going to be. Reversal of status. Upside down. Last first. Weakest strong. All this stuff. Poor Generous, you know, everything's unlike what the culture's telling you. So right away, we as, as Christian people and people that we're trying to get to come into Christianity, I don't want to tell anybody, come into Christianity, all your problems are going to be solved. They're not. You may be more aware of your problem. You might be, there may be more problems. But if you're going to become a Christian, understand things are upside down and our values change. The way we think about things, the way we think about people changes because our Savior looked at us differently. What did He see when He saw you? I don't know. I don't know what He saw in me. In fact, I know myself. I know that He saw nothing in me. And dear Lord, I mean, if you knew, you would run out the door screaming. You don't want to see what's in here. And you know, frankly, I don't want to see what's in there. Because I'm sure there's stuff that's all covered up and hidden. He sees it, and yet he still accepts us. So he goes low, he goes to the lowest, and he exalts us. So he's telling the lowly, the poor, the people that don't have any status in their culture, who don't have anything, saying, boast in your exaltation. Look what Christ has done for you. He has gone to the bottom to get you and brought you up. 
You can hold on to that. You can find your identity in that. Then he warns the rich, the people that have it all together, that are good looking and have money and and seem like everything they touch turns to gold. And, And he's telling them, be careful. Boast in your humiliation. Boast in the fact that that stuff doesn't cut any figure with God. He's not impressed with how much money we have or how good looking we are or how, you know, who we know, what our connections are, networks. That that isn't what impresses him. What impressed him was his son. Jesus impressed him. Jesus pleased him fully, completely. Jesus, if I could put it this way, it's kind of crass, but Jesus blew God's mind. And in Him we find that true identity, no matter how low or how high. And James is saying, start there. Find your true identity. Do you know what this would mean for us if we actually did this? Um, I, I teased, uh, uh, you know, when we go to Presbytery, everybody wants to know how, you know, the guy, how your church is doing. And so one of the phrases that you hear at Presbytery all the time is, how many, of you are, how many are you running, brother? How many are you running? And I, you know, I said, you know, what are we, cattle barons? <laughs> you know, what is that? You know, rawhide and crack the whip. Ah, you heard of cattle out here. We're all around. How many are running in your church? I hate that. I don't know how many I'm running. I know how many I want to run from. <laughs> so, Oh, anyway, you know, we, we measure ourselves by our nickels and our noses in churches. We measure ourselves. We're always measuring ourselves by other people and by other things and by the Internet. Now the, the social media, is, we're drowning in comparison. And do you know in a hundred years it's not going to matter? Nobody's going to be around in a hundred years. And yet we will, we will let our lives, we, we're like, we're just being jerked around on a chain by the devil. Just jerking us around and we just, we fall for it. And I have the glorious job of getting up here on Sunday and telling you, no. Say no to that. Don't say no to it in a low voice. Say no to it in a loud voice. And find your true self, your true identity in this reversal of status because Jesus came for the sick, for the broken, for the leper, for the blind, for the poor. Poor in money and poor in spirit. He came for us. He came into the gutter. He went into the gutter to get you. He didn't go into the the Taj Mahal to get you or the White House. He came into the gutter to get us. And He didn't get... He didn't stay clean when he went in the gutter. He took all that on himself. That's the whole point of his baptism in the River Jordan by, the, by John the Baptist was let righteousness be fulfilled in me. I will step into the filthy water. I will identify with them so that they can be in me. And you look how the mighty have fallen. We see every day on the news somebody else in some trouble. You know, this latest Harvey Weinstein, you know, the head of Miramax, a multi-bazillionaire, and he's going to go to jail. And rightly so. Money, can't keep, money cannot save you. Looks can't save you. A power can't save you. And we know that. But it is powerful. It just presses all the time against us. And uh, 
So, James is saying, he's talking, remember we talked about trials the past few weeks. He's saying, poverty is a trial. Not having enough, not being able to meet ends meet is a trial. But you know what? Having a lot of money is no uh, cakewalk either. I know. I have enormous amounts of money. And it's done nothing but cause me trouble. The truth is that I have had lots of money and I've lost it. And I've gotten it back. And I've lost it again, haven't you? I've lived long enough I can say that. I can remember times when Marty V and I had to go to the bank and sit down with a loan officer and borrow money to make our payroll. Now, those of you that are in business know that's the last stage before you die. Not borrowing money to buy equipment, not borrowing money to get more inventory. I borrowed money so I could make payroll. You're this close to death. I know what that's like. It's horrible, terrible. And we need wisdom. Remember 5 through 8, that part where he says, if you lack wisdom, ask when you're in a trial. So he's telling the the high and the mighty and he's telling the low, you know what, find your identity in Jesus and then you're going to need wisdom because the trials are there. They're going to come. They're going to try you. Sometimes your checkbook is flush. Sometimes it's in the red. Sometimes things are going well in your body. You're healthy. Sometimes not so good. Whatever the case is, Christians are to have an anchor point. And for those of you that don't know Jesus and wonder what should I become a Christian? The answer is yes. Do you want your anchor point to be in the New York Stock Exchange? Dead sign. What is up with that, Ugo? What's going on? I don't. Know. I guess nobody has stock. Do any of you hold stock in the New York Stock Exchange? Does any of you, anybody have an IRA? Do any of you have a bank account? Okay, look. If you want your life tied up in money and you're in the, you know, whatever, you, if you think, oh, it's just a stock exchange. I don't I have all my money under the pillow in my bedroom. Uh, good luck with that. That money just became worth less. And it will always be less. Because you cannot find your security or your identity in anything like that. Don't do it. Then, as the stock market goes up, have you ever looked at the Dow Jones Industrial Average? What does it look like? A jagged line. Those are your emotions. That's what it'll do to you. That kind of thing. It's an example. External things, listen to this. External things will either serve you or enslave you. So, an external thing, James is saying, these things are going to either serve you or enslave you. And... Look at verse 11. Things, whatever they are, they're like flowers that pass away. The illustration is beautiful. The sun comes up. It's scorching heat. The grass turns yellow. The flowers wilt and fade. The, The leaves fall off. The petals fall off. The heat scorching sun withers the grass and the flowers. Beauty also perishes. Go look in a mirror. Not the same as it was yesterday. So also the rich fade away in the midst of their pursuits. And when he's talking about rich, he's talking about people that, that have means and, and they are, they're enjoying those means. They are us. And there's nothing wrong with us enjoying the fruit of hard labor, going on vacation. He's not trying to put a guilt trip on anybody. He's just telling you with all the pastoral care and love that he can, 
is do not find yourself in that. Don't find your true self in that. Instead, ground yourself in the person and work of Jesus Christ and then let the trials come. Because you know what? I, man, I, I feel like I'm preaching bad news today. This is good news. The trials are going to come. With or without Jesus, you're going to go through them. You want to know the truth? You're going to go through trouble. With or without Him, you get to choose. You want to go through it with somebody who will never leave you and forsake you? Someone who loves you? Someone that went to the bottom for you? You want to go through it with that anchor? Or do you want to go through it alone and hope that the stock market comes back? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, look around you at the simplest things in nature. They cannot sustain even themselves. Don't put your trust there. Doesn't mean you don't... I watch the stock market every day. I have an app on my phone. That's how important it is to me. I say prayers, special prayers, Presbyterian prayers. <laughs> Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. Now, the church made mistakes and they said, oh, well, the remedy to that then is we give all our money away and go live in a cave. That isn't the remedy. Then what becomes your God? Not having anything and living in a cave. You should be able to have everything, enjoy. Like Ben said in Sunday school today, uh, that he makes his coffee in the morning and he grinds the beans and he makes the coffee and he drinks the coffee and for him that is worship. And that's not Job. I mean, he's, he's saying, I'm, I'm going to let everything I do be worshipful to God. And we can do the same. To where, okay, I'm very distressed that the economy is, you know, the, well, the economy is good, but the stock market took a dive, but... I'm not going to let it define who I am. Does that make sense? I hope I'm able to connect with this. You can't serve two masters. You're going to hate one and love the other, which is, becomes the reality. We end up despising the things that we think are going to serve us. You can't serve God and be enslaved, Jesus said, to money. You just can't. Now, and money's an example of, could be any number of things. Jesus said this, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, he uses a form of Greek where it's, a, it's sinning and constantly sinning. You just never, never stop sinning. So sin will enslave you as well. It doesn't mean that if you commit a sin, you're enslaved. What it means is if you give your life over to it, it's going to enslave you. But you can interrupt that. The way you interrupt that is with repentance. Lord Jesus Christ. This is an ancient prayer, by the way, that goes back, they don't even know how far back it is. It's called the Jesus Prayer. I can teach it to you right now. Twelve words. In Greek, it's twelve words. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he said, if you pray that, he forgives you. Okay. Where do you find your true worth? And that's the giver of gifts. Now I've jumped over a very important part and I'll tell you why. In 13 through 15, if you look at it in your bulletin or in your Bible, James says something that is uh, very difficult to hear and very hard, I think, to 
Not hard to understand, but it is hard to absorb. And that is, when you fall into a trial, do not blame God. And I have seen too many times people that have been broken and tried, myself included, and for a moment, and sometimes it can last a long time, we want to blame him. We want to boil everything down to it's his fault. And uh, that's going to take a whole sermon, which I'll do next week, about this thing about blaming God, holding him responsible for the evils of this world and holding him responsible for our uh, suffering and for our failures in our trials. Uh, it's a difficult subject, but I'm going to tackle it next week, and I hope that you all will come back for that. It's, but it is, it is hard. I'm not going to... I'm not going to make any bones about it. It's tough to talk about. But I'm skipping that because James didn't skip it. He just goes, this is him. He's a bulldog. He just goes right after everything. Uh, And we'll go at that next week. He says, don't you blame God. This is not God's fault that these things are happening around you and that you're going through a trial. That is not God's doing. You can't, he doesn't try people with evil things and and he cannot be tried with evil things. So, Put that in the back of your mind. We'll talk more about it next week. But then what he does immediately, because that is a difficult subject, very tender, he goes to the giver of gifts. And look at what he says in 17 through 18. This is amazing, folks. Talking about enslaving powers that will enslave you, powers that will take everything away from you, powers that will rob you of life and limb and liberty and everything else. He quickly rushes in, very quickly, with 17 through 18, and he says, whatever is good, whatever is perfect, is a gift from God. You see, he's he's intentionally telling you, look, we've been talking about temptations and trials and troubles and maybe suffering that accompanies those things. We're talking about all those things that will rob you and strip you bare, take away everything from you, even the desire to live. You can get to a point in your life where living is more painful than dying, and so people will sometimes consider taking their lives or actually will take their own lives. Because pain is real, and it can cause you to to completely despair. And he's saying, he's saying, look at it, contrast this. This will take away everything. But over here is the giver of gifts, perfect, good, coming down. They're not from this realm where everything is polluted and broken and promises not to satisfy. No, they're going to come from a realm, from a place, from the heart of your Savior, your King. They're going to come from Him and they will satisfy. The deepest longings, the one that nothing else can satisfy, they will... These gifts will go down into that place from our Father who created the lights in heaven. He's contrasting again light with darkness. He's saying, look, do you feel like you're in a fog? Do you feel like you're in the dark sometimes? I do. You would think, well, is, ever, is it ever going to clear up? Are things ever going to get better? He's saying, no, you need the Father of lights. He doesn't change. He doesn't vary. He's not capricious. He's not like the ancient gods of the ancient Near East were in a bad mood one day and a good mood the next day and you could change their mood by how much you know gifts you gave them or if you sacrificed a virgin or did whatever. You could change the moods of the gods. 
This God doesn't change. His posture towards his creation and towards his people is one of absolutely unfettered love and care and giving. That's the character. And he's putting it up against this other stuff. He's not a shifting shadow. He's not like the winds of change that will whip you around and take you all over. No. And then get this. He chose to give us birth. A new nature. He chose that. We don't have to talk him in to loving us. He already loves you. And he chooses you. I wonder if when we're in the worst trial, uh, last week something happened to me and it was not good and nobody knows about it. I haven't told anyone about it. I'm going to tell you today. But no details. But something happened to me and I got crushed in a second, in a moment. And the first thing out of my mouth was, Jesus, I choose you. Right now, I choose you. I'm, I feel like I'm going to come apart, but I choose you. And from there, I was able to move out from that place. I chose him because he first chose me. Do you see it? Because he first loved me. Because he first put his heart on me. Because he never will leave me or forsake me. I have the privilege of saying, no, today I choose you. I could choose the other thing, but no, I'm going to choose you. For goodness sakes, when are we going to put up a fight for our Savior, the one who loved us? And put up, you know, put up a fight for him. He chose to give us new birth. By giving us his true word, that's not only his scriptures, but his son. His son is the word of God. And we, out of all creation, listen to this. You want to find worth? Out of all creation, we become his prized possession. That's what it says. I didn't make that up. We become his prized possession. You know, when you come to my house, uh, and I hope many of you will, and I probably should have some of you over, but I'm not sure I like you that much. Uh, (laughs) I'm kidding. Uh, If you come into our house, there's a few things in our house that are precious and they're not what you think. There's a a wooden cross that uh, has a brass figure of Jesus on the cross, a crucifix, that was on my grandfather's uh, coffin. Because in the Orthodox Church, they always bury you with a cross. And I asked the priest if I could have it and he gave it to me. It's worth nothing. You can buy them. I mean, they're like $3. But if I was going to die and I could take something with me, I'd want that. I'd want that thing that's worthless, but it reminds me of who Jesus is and who my grandfather was and who I am and my connection to all of that. I'm... His prized possession. Imagine you going into God's house and he says, you are the most precious thing I have. How do you know? Since we've been made right with God, we have peace with him because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand, we confidently, 
joyfully look forward to sharing in His glory. We can rejoice. Because when we run into problems and trials, we know that they will help us develop our perseverance, our patience and endurance, develop strength of character. Character strengthens our confident hope in salvation. And this hope will not lead you to disappointment, will not let you down. For we know how dearly God loves us. I'm reading from Romans chapter 6. Because He has given us His Holy Spirit to fill his, our hearts. When we, were, when we were helpless, when we were yet in our sins, Christ died for the ungodly. On our worst day, He chose you. He chose to say on Chuck's worst day, I choose him. Will you trust him? Will you do that? James is pushing us to trust this God, the giver of good gifts. And I'm asking you, will you trust? If you've never done it before, I hope you'll do it. If you have, trust him again today. Because faith is an ongoing thing in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness and your goodness this day, one in seven, that we can gather together and peel away just this small slice of our lives to gather with other broken people, other hungry people looking for the bread of life. And I pray, Father, that you would fill each of us with your spirit, with the assurance of your love. For those of us that uh, struggle with our sins, uh, I know that you will forgive us and will cleanse us of all unrighteousness if we will but confess those sins. And I pray, Father, that as we come to your holy table this day, that we will find the nourishment that you promised and that you will feed us in our hearts by faith. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.